It was about eight or ten years ago in the deserts of central Nevada where there took place a series of home invasions and disappearances. These all happened in outlying areas, like right on the edge of the desert, on the precipice of civilization. Lightly occupied areas where towns were starting to expand out into the wilderness. Not only were people and entire families disappearing out of their homes, but the homes themselves were being stripped bare. Not just food and clothing, but utensils, tools, carpets were ripped up off the floor, mattresses were taken, batteries, anything that could be useful was taken from this house along with the people that lived there. After 16 people disappeared, the local law enforcement and the government decided they could no longer cover this up, even though they knew exactly what was happening. So they decided that it was time to end it once and for all. A special team, a black ops team, was brought in. And what happened to that team? What happened that night has become the stuff of legend. I call this one the thing in the basement. Drinking whiskey in the kitchen and telling scary stories around the fire. Music, monsters, and mayhem, killers, cannibals, and cults, fearful fiction and furious fact, tall tales, and terrible truths. This is a scary home companion. The heroes in tonight's adventure wouldn't necessarily be called heroes under any circumstances. Any circumstances other than this, of course. These are the sort of soldiers, vets, killers... They do off-the-books work. They do black ops. They do red ops. They do the notorious deep red ops. And they're usually employed by the sort of shadowy government agencies that live in the darkness between the official branches of our government. This team was a collection of washouts and suicide jackets from all branches of the military. They were returning from a mission in South America, specifics of which have never been made public. Of course, the specifics of any of their missions have never been made public, and the specifics of this particular night would have never been known if not for the survivor. As this team lands, preparing to take some well-deserved time off, they are instead corralled into a nearby hangar, where waiting for them, with a presentation, is a government agent. This man, who remains nameless, says that he represents the DRO, the Department of Restricted Operations. The team has done work for the DRO before, but nothing quite like this. The agent makes them spectacular cash offer for 12 hours of work. 
and then he proceeds to absolutely blow their goddamn minds by telling them what the mission actually is. The agent explains to the team that there is a group of hostiles operating on American soil in the Nevada deserts near the Yucca Flat. He explains to them about the disappearances. And then he says that this group of hostiles is a family, a very large, very inbred, and very primitive family. They've been extant, living out there in the desert sands for generations. And up until now, their actions have always been very well contained and had minor consequence. But now, as resources were growing more scarce, these primitives were becoming bolder, and their raids and abductions were becoming more frequent and closer to major population centers. This entire group needed to be taken off the field of play. He explains to the group that this sort of thing actually has precedent. In 1979, 1984, there were major incursions that were met by law enforcement, and the government was barely able to cover them up. For the most part, he explains, that these, that these people keep to themselves out in the hills. Not everyone evacuated the area during the original nuclear tests way back when. A lot of families stay behind. They went out into the hills, they dug in deep, they went into the mines, and they stayed. And, of course, most of them died off. But some of them are still out there today, 60 years later, warped, disfigured by generations worth of radiation, genetic mutation, as well as incest. They tend to live in families or clusters, or the government tended to call them nests. And they think that they have found the largest nest ever, and possibly the last one. The agent cautions the team that these hostiles, these primitives, may or may not speak English. They will be primitive, as will their weapons, but they are exceedingly dangerous. They're aggressive, they will kill and eat whoever they can whenever they get a chance. He implores the soldiers to not underestimate the ferocity or the endurance or the intelligence of these humans. He also tells them to mentally prepare themselves to see some physical abnormalities. Uh, the team leader his name is Doc, by the way, questions this. Abnormalities? Well, you know, decades of nuclear fallout and incest can do awful things to a DNA sequence. They may not look like people. The agent wishes them good hunting and leaves them to discuss amongst themselves the fact that they're about to embark on a bug hunt for mutant cannibals. The squad prepares for battle and are airlifted by helicopter out to the latest abduction site. Their tracker, an old man who 
is actually called Old Man by his contemporaries, quickly susses out what happens. What had happened. He finds heavy drag marks, like a like a an old time supply sled, and footprints leading off into the desert. These tracks are a day old at this point, but uh, he is an incredibly skilled tracker. Seems pretty obvious that uh, whoever attacked the house loaded up the people and the supplies onto a sled and dragged it out into the desert. With that in mind, they start following the tracks. And now is as good a time as any. The field leader, a guy named Doc, because he's an actual medical doctor, old man is the scout, geek it's a guy that wore the headset. Sort of self-explanatory. Sticks was infantry. He was the up-close-and-personal wetworks guy. Hoss was his backup, the big man, suppressing fire, artillery. And then the only female of the group, Lefty. She was the sharpshooter, probably the most dangerous one of the bunch. It's a good time to get to know everybody as they're spending a couple of hours crossing the desert following these tracks following some very unusual tracks there are boot prints and there are bare footprints and there are what look like dog tracks only if a dog had fingers sort of unnerving following the lay of the land and the tracks eventually they find where they lead a little shack, an outpost on the edge of a valley, this fissure, this massive crevice that slowly opens up as it goes down and turns into a valley. Right on the edge of it, there's a shack, and that is where the tracks lead. When I was a little girl, we lived down the road from a rendering plant. Do you know how that smells? It's like a sticky heat wave of rotting meat. The smell of death is so thick you can touch it. Well, this place, this valley, had the same smell. Like the land was rotting. As the team arrived to the edge of the valley... They caught up with the scout, and they found the old man crouched over a dead body. There had been a sentry on patrol watching out over this cabin. In full stealth mode, the old man had crept up behind the sentry and silently killed him. It wasn't until the sentry was dead that the old man even got a look at his face, at which he was stunned. He was still crouched there, just reeling, staring at this guy's face when the rest of the team came up behind him, and they were similarly affected. This sentry, he, uh, he had arms like a man, and he had legs like a man. He had a head, and he even had a face. That's where the similarity ended. There was no nose. His jaw was so twisted and misshapen, it gave his mouth a permanent circularness never closed and was ringed with 
needle teeth, like he was some sort of prehistoric shark. And yeah, the agent had told them to prepare for some physical abnormalities. None of them were prepared for this level of abnormality. They didn't have time to reflect much, though. There was still this cabin, which was obviously occupied by how many they couldn't tell from all the uh, tracks and footprints and drag marks outside of this cabin it seemed to be the site of a lot of traffic lefty stayed behind for for cover old man had her back to act as her spotter the other four took the cabin these are professional soldiers. They, uh, they shoot and kill. This is their bread and butter. The cabin full of inbred hillbillies? Not really that much of a problem for them. A flashbang grenade through a back window forced everybody, which it turns out there were four occupants of the cabin, right out through the front door, where they were caught in a crossfire. Lefty didn't even have to snipe anybody. They were all cut down that quickly. Lefty goes down, joins the crew. They look at the dead hostiles, each one deformed in a unique and special way. Hoss drags all the bodies inside and stacks them up, at which point they start to secure the area. It doesn't take long for Doc to figure out just by looking around the place that no one really lived in this cabin. This was a staging area. There were crudely drawn topographical maps of the area all over the walls, all over the tables, marked with circles and X's and lines as if they were drawn upon by children with crayons at Pizza Hut. But it was the hostiles keeping track of where they had been, where they had attacked, where there were supplies, or where there might be more supplies. Whatever this nest was that they were sent to wipe out, this cabin wasn't it. This was someplace adjacent to it. This is where the nest used to stage their raids. Geek and Lefty make a little discovery of their own as they're going through the rest of the cabin. In one of the back rooms, there's an open, gaping hole carved into the rock of the floor. Their flashlights seem to indicate that this is the mouth to an old system of mining tunnels. Neither one of them want to jump down there willy-nilly because they're uh, too smart for that. Instead, Geek takes off his body cam, they're all wearing body cams, and holds it down so that he can look both ways in the mine and see what's what. Almost instantly, he sees motion on his monitor. It's a kid. It's a little girl. She couldn't be any more than eight or nine, wearing this old, disgusting wisp of a burlap sack for a dress. And either she jumps back into the darkness or something pulled her, but she was gone just like that. 
The mission is not yet done because the nest has not yet been found and exterminated. But with the added wrinkle of a possible human victim that could be saved still down there, Doc makes the call to leave Geek and Old Man up top to stand watch. And he and the killers are going to go down below and see what's going on with this girl. Not more than a few steps in, and they realize that while up above was the staging area, like a like an outpost, down here, this is where people actually lived. There were several, several rooms with cots and uh, piles of blankets uh, on the floor, there food, uh, table. Uh, obviously, this is where a family had been living. In the back of one of these rooms... They see the girl. She hadn't been dragged anywhere. She was terrified of them. She was hiding in the corner. She didn't look profoundly mutated like the other people they had seen, but uh, when she looked up at them, she saw that they all saw that she had one blank, empty white eye, and the other eye had both pupils and irises in it. A little off-putting, but not exactly monstrous. She hissed at them and said something that might or might not have been a word before literally disappearing through a hole in the base of the wall. They looked after her, but this is like a tiny tunnel that she was able to slip through. And obviously she had slipped through before. And it was leading down. They go back into the main hallway and they start following some rail line that also goes deeper down. They can see now that the supply sleds were being dragged to the cabin up top. The supplies were brought down and put in. There was probably a handcart around here somewhere on these old rail lines. And they followed gradually down, deeper, deeper into the heart of this mountain. Until things open up and they hear the rush of water. And everything changed. I'd read some of the debrief on the chopper. These people, the godless things could be called people, they were bad. Sixteen civilians missing, all presumed dead. Seven of them were kids. Everyone's dog was missing, too. For whatever reason, that got to me. Who takes the dog? In front of them, the mine section had ended at the banks of an underground river. Not much unusual about that, except for all the old metal pythons that had been pounded into the side with nylon ropes that were relatively new. These were moorings. The soldiers quickly surmised. This was the next stage of how they moved supplies underground more and more deeply underground. Why do they need so many supplies? And why do they have to be so far down? But obviously at this point they transferred from the handcart into rafts and went down this river. There were no rafts or boats presently, but everybody could swim. And the thinking was that if these primitives could ride a raft 
down this river than it would be safe for these soldiers to swim down it. So they all jumped in. Back up top, Geek is going through the cabin and taking video and pictures of everything there, trying to document document as much as he can. Old man is watching the ridge up top, and he's the first one to see the raiding party returning. But these guys were not returning to the cabin unawares. They're out in the middle of the desert. Gunfire, like voices, carry. And so even as the old man spotted the main body of the raiding party coming back, flanked around a man of such enormity that let's just call him Big Fella. Even as the old man was spotting them and calling it out to Geek and those down below, he was already being flanked. He had no time for stealth. He was attacked from two different directions. By one thing that looked like a man with a bulbous head and another thing that looked more like a dog stooped over running on all fours. Hideous mouthful of teeth. They came in high and low at him from opposite sides. He had no choice but to draw his sidearm and open fire. At which point the rest of the returning mutants laid siege to the cabin. It was short and ugly. Geek was handy with a pistol, as were they all, but he was just outnumbered. The big fella was so big. He was able to pick up Geek off the ground with one hand and hold him aloft. As the old man watched, helpless, from 300 yards down the ridge, he watched his comrade Geek get literally broken in half and torn open, his innards dumped on the ground. Not enough, the big fella crushed his head and released a howl. This was before he even went in the cabin and saw all of his comrades laying there dead, stacked up like cordwood. He was raging now. He went and picked up Geek to inflict more damage to the corpse, and that's when he saw the iPad monitor. And he saw himself on it. He saw himself on the monitor from old man watching him from down the ridge. And like that, as primitive and monstrous as this thing was, he was able to triangulate where the old man was. He turned and looked and pointed, and the mutants started coming after the old man. He would fight his way out if he had to, but he was looking for a way to join his comrades. He started searching the ground, searching the inside of the lip of the valley where the rock started to shear away. And he quickly found that it was riddled with little tiny holes and rat tunnels. He found one big enough to hold him, and he crawled inside it. As the big fella mourns his fallen colleagues, that little girl appears inside the cabin and comes up to him. She gets him up. They are not kin, but they are close. She tells him in garbled gibberish language a few words and points down to the tunnel. Big fella rallies the troops and goes down after the soldiers. 
Doc, Lefty, Styx, and Haas ride the river for a very short time, although they probably descend another quarter mile into the earth in a matter of a few seconds, the rush of the water before being thrown off a very small, mild waterfall into a massive underground lake. So deep beneath them that the waters appear to be black, although they all think they see movement down there. They quickly swim to the edge, get themselves out of the water, pull themselves up onto a shore. And it is only then that they begin to look around and take in their new environment and see how staggering and wonderful it is from all around them. And these cave systems open up. They see dozens of little pinpoints of firelight, dozens of little pinpoints of electric lights as well. All these little caves, tents, abandoned cars all over the place, in all directions, all centered around this lake. There's hundreds. There must be hundreds of fires and lights. If each one is a person or each one is a family, there might be thousands of these people down here. Thousands of these things. And they're trying to make sense of all this and take it all in when they hear the big fella howling from above. This isn't a howl of rage or mourning, though. He's calling out to his brothers down below, and those brothers answer. The dark waters behind our group open up as these subhuman faces begin to emerge, and each of them gurgle back a howling response. The alarm has been raised. There is an incursion. Outsiders have come into the home. And the big fella is rallying the troops. These inhuman monsters started raising up out of the water and coming at the crew. Who fell into position like the pros they were regardless of the circumstances and what foul circumstances they were with webbed feet and curve hooked taloned hands long patches of disgusting overgrown skin that looked vaguely like fins these things ran at them shrieking only to be cut down with superior firepower but then the caves all around the lake started to come to life littler creatures. They might have been children, or they might have just been small and misshapen, started coming from all directions. The firefight was enormous. The bodies started to pile up. Sticks got the side of his neck ripped out from the bite from one of these things. In a panic to try and get him some first aid, the other three grabbed him and started dragging him towards the the nearest tunnel they could find, the only one that looked open. Of course, it was open because these primitives, these savage monsters, were much more cunning than the soldiers gave them credit for. When they 
dragged sticks inside the mouth of this particularly large cabin, cavern. Tried to help him. It was too late. They only watched him bleed out. And they never realized that the big fella and his crew were coming up on them through that tunnel. Hoss was the biggest. He seemed to be the most obvious threat, so that's the one that the big fella grabbed first. They had an epic fist fight, smashing each other with fists like cannonballs. Lefty and Doc attempted to provide cover, but they were swarmed. They both got separated, ended up going down different caverns. They weren't there to watch as Hoffs was finally killed. His neck snapped, his arms and legs broken. He still wasn't dead. He was still alive. And a lot of those little children things started chittering and tittering and creeping up all around, asking for a bite. The big fella waved them off. He made a strange sound and he pointed towards the water. Still alive, he picked up Hoss and set him in the water and pushed him towards that little corner of the lake that led to a small little creek leading away. He was going to feed Hoss to the thing in the basement. Hoss, his body cam was still operational. He was crying, alive, paralyzed, calling for his mama. Once I started watching on my monitor, I couldn't look away. It wasn't sympathy, it was recon. Hoss was showing me the way out. I could see everything, mostly in bits and pieces. It was a society. Hundreds of people, hundreds of families. I saw a dock where they did laundry. There was a barbed wire clothesline. Washboards and black water. There were huts, little shacks made out of caves and scavenged scraps. Whole families inside them eating dinner and playing games just like people. There were a couple of mutant boys, if you can call them that. They were fishing. Saw them pull a line of fish out of the water. They had had scorpion legs and segmented eyes. Lots of graffiti down there. No words that I could read, but the marks obviously meant something to somebody. Lots of mushroom clouds. Lots of stick figures with the wrong number of limbs. Haas went over a waterfall. He came back up on the surface. Finally, he was quiet. The Lord took his soul. His body splashing around like that stirred up a mess of bats. They were flocking around the top of the cavern. And I see one of them get shot by an arrow. A crossbow bolt on a long piece of line barbed hook on the end. Went right through the wing. It fought, but he got pulled into the water. It was a couple of other boys. Down here, they lived in the water, I guess. I saw a couple of heads in the water. Chewing up that bat, but I didn't get a good look. Guess they were just fishing like everybody else. After that, the river thinned out. Old 
dry bones on the bank. One more waterfall right at the end, and Haas went over into some kind of chasm. Something grabbed him right out of the air. I couldn't see what it was, and I thank God for that every day. But what I did see was a little piece of life. Imagine, if you will, being trapped under hundreds of feet of solid rock, surrounded by hundreds, possibly even thousands of horrific monsters that want to tear you apart and eat you alive. Half the squad was dead now, ripped to pieces literally by these savages. The other three were scattered, separated, lost from one another and from the world at large. Only a couple of people above ground even knew where they were, and the chances of a rescue party coming were virtually nil. After what she had seen on Haas's body cam, Lefty knew that if she went down deep enough, there was a way out. She had seen glimmers of light. She just had to keep looking. She knew she couldn't go back, she couldn't go up, but if she kept going down, maybe she could find a way. This led her to the mommy cave. Meanwhile, Doc thought of his own way out. Maybe it wasn't the smartest plan, but fortune favors the bold. When he saw an opportunity, he took it. He had stopped running and started hiding, bought himself some time to catch his breath, and by sheer luck, he sees the big fella walking past. He gives it a few breaths, and he starts to follow. through thousands of winding, sprawling meters of tunnel. Finally, it emerges. It emerges into this huge, wide-open space, this chasm. The ceiling so high, it just disappears into the shadows. Who knows how tall it is? It's narrow. It's almost like a little strip of desert underground. And although, although the big fella is long gone at this point, it's easy to see where he went. In this huge big space, there's only one thing that Doc can see. And it is an old, beat-up remains of an RV. No wheels, no windows, just the cube living part stripped from an RV sitting in the middle of this desert. He approaches delicately, quietly, hears all sorts of strange things. None of it quite prepares for him for what he sees when he finally peers through one of the open window sills, though. It's very domestic. It's very domestic in there. It's, it's a little house. The big fella, as scary and monstrous as he looks, is a family man. And Doc sees a, a big, fat, morbidly obese, disgusting, Disgusting Ursula from Little Mermaid-looking woman sprawled out over a twin-size mattress laying in the middle of the floor. 
It looks like she's actually fused to the mattress in places. With horror, Doc watches on as the big fella crosses the room and leans down to give his beloved wife a kiss. As she leans up, her jaw distends like a snake. It pops out a joint and opens wide, and he... When they kiss, it looks like she's swallowing half of his deformed face. At this point, despite all of his combat training, all the life that he's taken, all the horrors that he's seen, Doc can't help himself. He wretches just a little bit. And that little noise is all it takes. And it's not even the big fellow and his wife that heard him. They were too wrapped up in one another. It was their kids, their brood. All these little, I don't know, hairless meat sacks. They look like slick, greasy, newborn puppies crossed with spiders. They start yipping and making these horrific noises from all over the cabin. Doc realizes there must be 20 or 30 of these disgusting little things. The kids... This draws the attention to Big Fella, who spots him immediately. Doc figures he has no choice but to act. He drops a flashbang grenade, moves into the house. By the time the Big Fella knows what's happening, Doc has a gun to his wife's head. Doc tries to talk his way out. He's trying to turn a negative into a positive here. He explains to the Big Fella that... If he just agrees to lead him safely to the surface, he'll leave the wife and kids alone. He has no idea if the big fella or anybody in the room understands a single word he says, but he kind of doubts it. And then he feels these stings, these bites all over his ankles. He looks down and he's being swarmed, his lower legs, by by the kids, these little hairless puppies, and... They're they're biting at him, and they're ripping little tiny chunks out of him. None of them can really hurt him that much, but goddamn, are they trying. It's enough to distract him, at which point the wife leans her head back, pops her jaw fully out of socket, and bites his face clean the fuck off. That is the end of Doc. Meanwhile, though, Lefty was in the mommy cave. This is what we're going to call it because she realizes as the cave comes to an end and opens up into a a larger cavern that the word mommy has been written in chalk and stone on the walls and ceiling of the cave all around her hundreds of times. Mommy, 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 mommy. In front of her, this cavern has actually been sectioned off. There are hanging drapes and strips of carpet that uh, act as a barrier. And going gun first, of course, she pulls back the edge of this barrier and steps through into the room beyond. If the last one was the mommy cave, this was obviously the birthing cave. This was the maternity ward. All around the room were pallets, little piles of dirty blanket and pillow. In a 
attempt to, I guess, brighten the place up for expectant mothers. Old photographs and posters and pictures torn out of magazines have been stuck to the wall with clay and glue, and there are stacks of old, broken televisions stacked all around the room. Dozens of televisions, and on each of them, pictures have been drawn right under the glass with paint. That's how they do TV down here. There are three figures in the room, one of them a woman, obviously dead, her lower torso completely ripped open from inside. Second woman, battered, beaten, hands and feet bound, but alive, breathing, although comatose. And the third woman, back in the corner of the room, alive, also bound, gagged, with a grotesquely swollen belly. Nine months plus, chances are, based on the size of her abdomen, there's more than one in there. Lefty cuts the woman free, takes the gag out of her mouth. The woman begs her, get me out of here before the nurse comes back. I can't be here. None of us can be here when the nurse comes back. And I'm due. I'm, and she starts screaming. The baby is coming. Probably brought on by her accelerated heart rate. Who knows? Maybe it was listening. And it heard her plotting to escape from in the womb. But whatever she was pregnant with, whatever foul, monstrous, cannibal offspring was growing inside her, decided now was the time to claw its way out into the world. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning whoever shed the blood of man by man shall live but be shed. And for your lifeblood, I will require a blood reckoning whoever shed the blood of man by man shall live but be shed. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning whoever shed the blood of man by man shall live but be shed. Book of Genesis. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning whoever shed the blood of man by man shall live but be shed. And for your lifeblood, I will require a book of reckoning whoever shed the blood of man by man shall live but be shed. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man, shall his blood be shed. Book of Genesis. Repulsed and yet transfixed, Lefty stood there, rooted to the ground for several seconds, watching what was happening in front of her. This thing that emerged, dragging its mother's entrails with it, appeared to be a set of conjoined triplets. Three heads, three torsos, five arms, four legs, and a couple of dangly things behind that might be legs or tails. It crawled forth from the steaming gunk of its mother's torso and screamed with three voices. <laughs> with her dying breath, the mother looks down and sees what she's given birth to, and she screams too with such such anguish, such pain. Lefty has no choice. She's spurred to action. She draws her sidearm and shoots the woman through the head. as an act of mercy. She was going to put three bullets into that baby that little monster, one for each of the heads just to make sure, but that's when the nurse came back. 
a hideous, deformed, old crone with a pale white hatchet face, one offset eye, and an empty socket, dressed in old gray rags of indeterminate gender. It had, this nurse had heard the gunshot and came running. Lefty got her wits about her, and before the nurse had crossed the room, she shot her three times in the head, using those three bullets as the baby crawled away into the shadows. Instead of chasing it, Lefty went to the other woman in the room and executed her as well, also an act of mercy. She was lucky. She didn't have to wake up down there. The gunshots started drawing the attention of the other mutants. Lefty could hear them coming. She went out through the back of the room, through another cloth and carpet barrier, pushed through into a long, very tall, wide cavern, which apparently this society, this was where they buried their dead. Lefty found herself walking down a simple footpath down the middle of a seemingly endless cemetery. Hundreds, thousands of graves, most of them just piles of rock, some of them piles of earth marked with markers. And on each of the markers, it said the same word, Mommy, Mommy, Mommy. Lefty keeps going deeper. She has no choice at this point. She can't go back. She can never go back. Only forward. She's got to find the river. She's got to hear the rush of the water. Once she finds the water, she can find her way out. She knows that the water is what took Hoss. She knows that's the way out. But she gets lost in this network, this catacomb of tunnels constantly hiding, constantly ducking as things walk past her. And although she doesn't hear water, she does hear the familiar sound of dogs. And she follows that sound. It's it's something. At this point, she's completely lost track of time. She's completely lost track of direction. She knows she's all alone. She knows it's only up to her. Man and those dogs, at least there's something. She follows them. She follows the noises to the source. And there are several dozen mangy, pathetic dogs behind chicken wire in one particular set of caves. It looks like they're fed scraps. Most of them are skin and bones. A lot of them are so badly inbred they could never walk to begin with. While at first she assumes that it's a kennel, and I guess, technically speaking, it is a kennel, just outside the mouth of this cave is a little execution area, a perfectly square piece of rock, deeply ingrained with blood and bits of grue, where the dogs are taken out and executed before they're cut up for food. She's actually hiding there, 
watching, thinking about these dogs, when a mutant comes walking up, a mutant in a butcher's apron coming out from a separate cave. He's got a heavy meat cleaver in his hand. He reaches over the chicken coop, fencing, and he snatches one of the dogs up by the nape and throws it over onto the killing block. Lefty doesn't let that happen, of course. She uh, shoots the mutant in the back of the head before he even knows that she's there. And then just for good measure, she slashes his throat and throws him over the fence into the kennel. Let the dogs have a little nosh, right? She, weapon still drawn, moves into the cave where this mutant came from. She finds a, well, for lack of a better term, a cafeteria. There's a small kitchen area, and then little places set on the stone floor for people to eat. She doesn't know maybe this is the cannibal version of a soup kitchen. They feed dogs to the people that can't find, you know, their own people to eat. And although no one is currently eating, there are several people that appear to be working in the kitchen, preparing for that day's meals. The firefight is short, but eventful. She shoots one of them in the head, only to find that her bullet could not penetrate the thick skull of this thing. She's grabbed, beaten. She manages to kill a couple of them, but that one she shot simply will not go down. It drags her over to the edge of this pit, this black pit in the middle of the room. This is where they throw the scraps, this is where they throw the bones, the things that are absolutely inedible. They throw it down there so that it can be eaten by the thing in the basement. The lower and lower she goes, the more and more profound and monstrous the deformities become. And even in this society, even in this horrific society, there are the worst of the worst. There are the creatures that are considered monsters and that are kept down below they're still fed that is where they throw lefty I could hear these things walking around off inside the caves they're big and wet Lovecraftian yeah it applies to monsters so big and so terrifying that you just look at them it can drive you insane I kept my eyes closed. And then I heard it. A way out. Lefty came to, laying upside down on a pile of wet, broken bones. Animal bones, human bones, it was hard to tell, because all of them had been one at a time broken in half so that all the delicious marrow could be sucked out. She laid there for a moment looking around the room. She saw multiple other piles of bones, remains. But in the background, she heard the trickling of water. This was the end of Haas's run. 
She'd come to the very bottom, which means here somewhere there was a ray of light that she could follow out, somehow out. There are other more sinister sounds beyond that of water. Large, wet, leathery shapes moving in the darkness, grinding against stone wall and floor. So she moves carefully, very slowly. Takes inventory of what she has. She's got nothing. She's got no bullets. She's got no sidearm. She even lost her knife. What she does have are two working arms and two working legs. And although she is beat up, she's battered, she's cut deeply and losing blood, everything works. So she grabs a couple of those broken bones, scrapes them along the ground a few times to sharpen them up, turn them into bone knives, bone shanks. And then one of those large shapes starts to move towards her. She hunkers down and pulls back against the wall. The thing, the large shape that waddles past her, looks almost like melted candle wax, with a large bulbous head fused to one sloping shoulder. And on the opposite side, there was a huge, open, gaping wound in the side of its ribcage. It stops and it sniffs the air but at this point lefty she's so covered with mud and blood and gore she blends right in whatever the thing thinks it smells it ends up moving away a few heartbeats pass and then there's a rattling inside of one of those big piles of old bones Skulls shift and fall. An old man climbs out from under his hiding place. He looks at Lefty and he puts a finger up to his bloody lips. Shh. Old man comes over to Lefty. They briefly embrace. Just so good to see a comrade in a time like this. But the movement draws the attention of that big shambling shape which starts to move back towards them. Old man tells Lefty, if you don't move, it can't see you. Then from the other end of the tunnel, a voice comes back. A little girl's voice. Says, you're right. My big sister is blind. This is the little girl... Lefty saw earlier. Standing down here like this is where she lives. Because this is where she lives. With her big sister. And that big shambling shape walks up underneath the little girl. And now Lefty sees that this thing has one white eye. And its other eye has two irises and two pupils in it little girl starts to slide off the ledge. She puts her feet, she slides her feet into that huge gaping wound in the side of this monster and slides down into her. Conjoined twins. Once again, two sisters 
united. The little girl says, together we can both see you. They bolt down a tunnel, trying to leave the sisters behind. Something else comes out in front of them. This shrunken, diminutive, but very long thing with a bulky torso. A dozen frail, emaciated legs that sort of dragged along behind it like useless tentacles. Old man drew his sidearm, fumbled a little bit. Lefty's hands are so quick... She took it from his hands and put a bullet in the thing's head before Old Man knew what happened. It was, however, his last bullet, which they sorely could have used when the sisters came up behind them. She asked for a clip. Old Man says there are no clips. That was it. That was the last bullet. All I have left is this, and he shows her a detonator. It's around this time. She notices the blinking red lights going up and down the tunnel. The old man has been busy when he found his way down here to the bottom, to the basement. He got to work, making sure that the place would never claim any more lives. To the end, the guy's a pro. Although the little sister is normal size for an eight or nine year old the big sister is anything but she was a good two head taller than lefty who was not a short woman as big as it was it was very slow and although she might have been out of bullets lefty still had a sharpened bone and repeatedly stabbed that thing in the chest although it seemed to do very little old man says I think you're stabbing the wrong one lefty And with that, he took his own sharpened bone and plunged it into the upper chest of that little girl. Both of the sisters screamed in pain in unison as one. They felt it one and the same. In that instant, old man dropped the bone. He grabbed that little girl by the arm and he yanked her out of her big sister. She came out drenched in this afterbirth-like goo both of the sisters screamed and both of the sisters died. All this ruckus had drawn the attention of the other hideous creatures down in this basement. The sisters were not the only thing down there. There were more, much more. They were all drawn. Not to mention all this noise and commotion bringing the mutants down from above. The more normal looking ones were still on the hunt. They still wanted Lefty. They were coming down. Old man tried his best to remember the way out. He's a scout by nature. This is what he does, but... It was really a um, honeycomb of tunnels. He did his best to lead her up. To lead Lefty up to safety. After a while, the mutants got too close... He pulled out the detonator, and he set off the charges. Amidst smoke, growing heat, old man and lefty pushed themselves through the earth and out through a tiny aperture. They found themselves on the floor of the valley. 
All around them, smoke was pouring from dozens of little holes in the sides of the valley and the floor, showing just how many tunnels the place was riddled with. Old man. He pulled out a pack of cigarettes that he had in a Ziploc bag, shook one out for himself, one for Lefty, and they sat amidst the smoke, the screams of burning, dying mutants. And they enjoyed a cigarette. And they enjoyed being alive. And for Lefty, an old man, that's the story. They made it. Within a few minutes, the black choppers arrived. That shadowy agent from the DRO came with a full contingent of men wearing plain white bio suits. They knew better than to try and go underground. But they collected every specimen that was up there. All the bodies got bagged, tagged, stacked up for study. The agent himself did not wear a bio suit. He simply held a white kerchief over his mouth and nose as he walked around, getting the lay of the land bit of motion caught his eye, and he sees something small, a newborn baby, push its way out of the dirt through one of those little tunnels. It cried out in three voices. The agent knelt down in front of these conjoined triplets, gobsmacked, having never seen anything like it, and he called his agents over bring this one alive for study. And that is the story of the thing in the basement. If we learn anything from this story, it's that mutant cannibals can be people too. But like most people, they're probably assholes. Thank you for listening to another episode of A Scary Home Companion. The opening sequence music was provided by Chelsea Oxendine. Check her out online. Her YouTube channel is Chelsen, C-H-A-L-S-E-N. The rest of the music from this episode was all provided by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com. They've got thousands of banging tracks there to download for free. Check it out. If you have music you'd like to submit for future episodes, contact me at a scary home companion at gmail.com. The voice of Lefty was provided by my beautiful and talented wife, Jamie Hensley. This episode was sponsored by and fully fueled by Three Fingers Whiskey. Remember, if it's good whiskey, you only need three fingers. Please subscribe to A Scary Home Companion or just check back in regularly. More new episodes coming soon.